0: Do I think preservation rhinoplasty has a place? Sure. To use it as a marketing tool, like it's easy, and it's going to give you a better result, I think is fooling the public, and I don't really love that.
1: So welcome to another episode of the Rhinoplasty podcast with me, Dr. Cameron McIntosh. We are in the month of March, and um, the theme for the month is the influences and it's proudly brought to us by Elegant. Um, we're all familiar with Juvederm and Botox, et cetera, So we're looking forward to chatting about that. Now, my guest today is someone I've been following for a long time. I feel like I'm a bit of a junior interviewing someone who doesn't just do one, but run two podcasts and is a highly influential person around the world in plastic surgery and facial plastic surgery. So it's a great honor to have Dr. Jay Calvert with us today. Jay, thank you so much for being on the show today. It's great to be here, Cameron. Thanks for having me. So Jay, I, 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 there's so much I want to chat to you about. One of the highlights was you leading the rhinoplasty society's team that won the talk at World Rhinoplasty Day two years ago. You put a great team together. Eh? What did that feel like? For I you? did. I,
0: yeah, it was really, uh, that was a very hard set of, uh, you know, it was a hard choice of who to put on the team because I have so many incredible rhinoplasty society surgeons. And I really, when it came down to it, I picked everybody for a very specific reason. And it t- turns out Jeff Marcus kind of, you know, he you showed know? up as the top dog. And you know, who who could blame him? He's he's an amazing rhinoplasty surgeon, and as the you know chief at Duke, he really has the experience to to
1: demonstrate what he does very well. No, he's it's amazing. Eh? So tell me, um, before we start talking about like plastic surgery and stuff, you've got a great. A few things that stand out to me on your Instagram is the one, it's your passion for sports and uh, keeping fit and holistically looking after yourself Um, together with that is the Dr. Hockey podcast. Tell me a little bit more about that. Well, the Dr. Hockey podcast
0: is just a, it's a total fan with a microphone hobby. (laughs) Okay, I, I am a huge hockey fan and I started it after I had helped the, uh, the Maloof brothers write their pitch to get the Vegas Golden Knights to get their team in Las Vegas. And I, uh, I wound up, you know, sort of sending Joe Maloof an email that I think was later like sort of cut up a little bit and put out as the press release when they got the the team. But I really helped them understand the difference between basketball and, and hockey because they had owned the Sacramento Kings. Wow. And now that with, along with, um, uh, Foley, who's the big, uh, you know, Foley Vineyards, and he's the big money guy behind it. But he really wanted the Maloofs because they knew how to own a team. Anyway, I helped them with that. And afterwards, they said, you have to do something with your hockey knowledge. You know so much. And so I didn't really know what to do. So I started a podcast and I just started talking about, you know, hockey and what's going on in the NHL. And then I got a call from Podcast One uh, and they said, we'd like you to be our hockey guy. And so Dr. Hockey Podcast
1: sits on the Podcast One network to this day. That's cool, because I, so I did a lot of sports. I was an Olympic nurse, and I, I immediately when I saw it, I thought, hey, are you doctoring these hockey guys who smash their faces up or not?
0: Well, sure. I mean, I see, you know, it's interesting. I see more of their uh, wives, mothers, and girlfriends for surgery than I do them. They, uh, they're not too concerned about the way they look. I can tell you that right now. But they definitely are concerned uh, about, you know, getting good plastic surgery for their family. So I do a lot of... Uh, I know a lot of the hockey players from that circle and and it actually uh, spilled over to the uh major league baseball wow. uh, kind of world as well so I have a lot of the uh the dodgers and the angels that uh, that come to me and you know it's it's great at uh, the the downside's all hush hush they just talk amongst themselves uh, yeah, yeah. You know it's not like you know I go to a dentist who has Pictures on the wall, you know, magazine covers signed by every celebrity you could imagine in Hollywood. Thanks for the great teeth, John. Yeah, and uh, you know they they just don't do that with their plastic surgeon. I'm I'm sort of a well kept secret,
1: I guess. Yeah, but uh, I mean, on that point, you know, um, I remember a cool phrase that Rod Rodick said to me is, "Everyone's world famous on their own website." I think there's a lot of self promotion <laughs> out there, and I don't think you need that. I mean, you're no. a world class surgeon, so why do you have to go and put a photograph of some celebrity? Who hasn't put in what two decades of work to get where you at no that's true i i don't i i don't need
0: that it, it it's i've i'm very fortunate i am i wake up grateful every day for the practice that i have and who my patients are yeah. i have great patients i have an incredible practice it's very busy and it's as busy as i want it to be that's for sure and and i mentor the fellows and the medical uh you know not the medical students but the residents who come through You know, I have a lot of a a lot of upside to what I do in terms of uh, being able to teach. And it's really fantastic.
1: I I 100 percent cannot complain at all. So I want to digress there for a second. What got you into as a youngster deciding to first become a doctor and then a plastic surgeon? And you, you got such a wild field of plastic surgery. A lot of the people on this podcast obviously focused on rhinoplasty and you do a lot of rhinoplasty, but you do a lot of body plastics as well. Tell us the journey of how you got there. Well, I was
0: influenced mostly in high school by my uh, my high school girlfriend's father, who was a vascular surgeon, a guy named Bruce Brenner, and he was an incredible guy, and he helped people in in just every way you can imagine, and he was just a good, really good guy. Yeah. And so I had two passions when I was in high school, and it was I was either going to be a rock star or I was going to be a doctor, and I didn't know which one was going to win out. Well, in you quite married honestly, both together. When I went to that, now, you became yeah, a rock star doctor. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, you can kind of you can kind of still I can always play music, but I couldn't always become a doctor. So in in college, when I was at Vanderbilt, uh, I knew I wanted to go to med school. So I became a molecular biology major and I was still playing music a lot. We had a band called the Sleepwalkers and it was with uh, my high school buddy, my drummer from high school. And then this six foot five gigantic artist from the School of Visual Arts in Manhattan, a guy named John Calteca. And Caltech would walk in the room, and everybody would just—they just look at him like he was just a, a presence, like Ted Nugent or something. And our band was amazing, so we sent out—we sent out all kinds of demo tapes, and we got back like a, a, a letter from Sony Records. They're like, "Okay, we like you. We'll—we'll we'll send you out on the road with some of our bands. Uh, we'll do like six months, and you know, we'll pay for like your room, board, all that stuff. And we're going to test you guys and see how it looks." And literally, all three of us were like. Nope. <laughs> and we, that was literally our big break. It was right in front of us, and we did not take it. And to this day, I, I don't think there's any one of us that regrets not taking it. Wow. We've all. I mean, I've never regretted doing this. I, I love plastic surgery. I love being a doctor. Um, it's kept my brain in incredible shape. But you know, I see. You know, just as a as an aside, I'm, I'm over at this rock and roll fantasy camp with my son this weekend, which is why I'm in the office on a Sunday. And uh, he's playing with uh, Jerry Cantrell from Alice in Chains and uh, Kim Tahil from uh, Soundgarden and uh, Mike Kroger from Nickelback. I mean, the people that are at this rock and roll camp with my son and they're all, you know, they're all in bands that are still extremely relevant, but their, their big days came and went with the 90s and the early 2000s. They're still jamming. They're still loving it. They love what they do. The drummer from uh, Jane's Addiction, Perkins, he's just like I'm. 54 years old. I've never had a real job. I love this. He's so totally excited to be there. You know, the dude from White Snake. I mean, you know the guitarists from Queensrÿche, Sarzo. Th- these guys are just they're they're as into what they do today as they were when they were
1: you know playing stadium tours. Well, one of the other so things cool. that I see on, on, on your Instagram feed is the quotes that I love your quotes that you post, you know, and, and to me, I look at it and you also haven't ever had a real job to me. You, 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 you're you loving what you do, man. <laughs> I don't have a real job. This is definitely not a real job. I love it.
0: I've never felt like I've gone to work. I never, I never wake up in the morning like, oh, I can't believe I got to go to work today. I wake up and say, I'm going to go help some people. I'm going to do what yeah. I love doing. Yeah. I'm going to teach. I'm going to educate I've always felt that way, and and I in a way, I really connect with these, you know especially with uh Jerry Cantrell, you know he and I we, you know got to chit chat for a minute, and I just felt like you know this guy just loves being a rock star and and you know he's he's totally into it, totally into writing, and he's totally into mentoring it's very cool awesome
1: let's let's change tech again and tell me how did the Beverly Hills plastic surgery podcast come about?
0: well, this was sort of a I felt like I had to take that real estate. Like after I got into the Dr. Hockey podcast and we were getting 10, 15,000 downloads uh, uh, an episode, I kind of said, man, you know, I, I better do something in plastic surgery, you know, because this is a great medium. And I just kind of looked at my uh, associate down the hall, Dr. Millicent Ravello, who is just a really great plastic surgeon. She does mostly body stuff. Um. I said, "Hey, we should do a podcast and we should talk about all the things that our patients need to know." And put it on these podcasts and then we can actually refer them to it. Yeah. And that's what we do. So like when I know I have like a an infected implant or something coming up, I say, "Let's do a podcast about this." And then like my patient can like refer back to it and and then it all adds up and when when patients kind of uh come through the website and say, "Hey, I want a consult for a rhinoplasty." It's like, "Great. You're going to talk to my coordinator." By the way, here's a podcast about uh primary rhinoplasty, or here's one about revision rhinoplasty, or I broke my nose here's one about trauma, and they can go there and they can listen to all the issues and then they always kind of get hooked and they pick all the other little episodes that relate to them and people they like our podcast we have a pretty good following on it. It's not like dr hockey um but it's getting there uh and you know we'll we'll see we're we we keep pushing it and building it we're gonna do a little bit of uh PR around it to try to get it, you know, a little more popular. But we do get a lot of patients that come in after they listen to it. And I've had consults where patients have come in and said, "Okay, I listened to your revision rhinoplasty podcast. I listened to the rib graph podcast, and I listened to your tip reconstruction podcast. So I'm ready to book." But these are my questions, and literally, I haven't even said hello yet. Wow, that's great! <laughs> you know, right? They're just they're they're already like they're pre booked. They've got all the information, they understand, they've looked at the befores and afters, and it just adds up for them, like, I,
1: I have to do this. Well, We've got, like, two big groups that listen to this podcast, both, like, from a, a surgeon side, but also a lot of patients, and it's listened to all over the world. So which, how do people get hold of the podcast to listen to you? I mean mostly what what I do is I send them to uh
0: you know the podcast on Spotify or Apple Podcasts or even Google Podcasts it's it's all over the place but I'll I'll just send them a direct link literally when they come when they chime in for their consult or you know if somebody calls in my my team will send them links to it and we tell them to subscribe because once they subscribe they they get more information about more topics that they didn't even know they needed to know about like how to you know maintain your your skin and what lasers can do for you, and all the new liposuction techniques and there's just there's a lot of stuff that we talk about that people wouldn't necessarily know that they needed to know, and it's very helpful and, and we we actually get a lot of we get a lot of direct messages on our Instagram from patients who say, You know I just had my rhinoplasty in Houston, and your podcast was so helpful, and my surgeon was great, but the information that I got on your podcast
1: really made it much more comfortable for yeah. me yeah. And that's very powerful. That's cool. Okay, so a topic I wanna to chat you about a bit is uh, liquid rhinoplasty. Um, what are some of your thoughts around that?
0: I mean, I have a few you know, cases every six months or so where pa- patients come in and say, I wanna do an injectable rhinoplasty. And if they're a good candidate for for it, I'll do it. I'm not really known for it. So it's usually somebody that's been referred in um, you know, I don't advertise that I do that. I don't have it, you know, on my website, really, I don't think. But it's mostly just where, you know, the patient says, I don't want to do rhinoplasty. Can't you do this or do that? And I said, mm, okay, yeah, it looks like that'll work. But a lot of times they just, the, the big miss in liquid rhinoplasty is people don't understand that when it's over, they're going to have a bigger nose. They They don't get that. Like it's going, we're adding filler to your nose. It will be bigger. Exactly but and but how much that's that's a big misconnection that i mean i think a lot of a lot of the people that do liquid rhinoplasty as like they're one of their primary things they, they don't ever really explain that so these patients get these fillers in their
1: nose and it's like and now it's bigger yes exactly <laughs> and tell me in terms of um fillers and Botox, etc on the face do you do much is that a big part of your practice I really try to send all that
0: to my uh, PAs, my physician assistants, and my nurse injectors. Um, I do some. I'm always sort of shocked when there's one on my schedule for me to do some filler or whatever. But I have some patients that just want me to do it. You know, they want the doctor, and that's that. Um, I, I'm okay with that. I don't have a problem with it. I don't. I don't line up a day where I do Botox and fillers. I mean, I think. I think I might. I might do that because I do have a lot of patients and if I were to dedicate a day to it, then it would be a lot easier for me that rather than popping
1: it into the middle of, you know, eight or nine consults for the day or something. Okay. In terms of, uh, one of the hot topics in rhinoplasty at the moment is preservation rhinoplasty. Have you started to incorporate that into your practice or not? Um, what, cause, cause it's, it's very interesting for me how some people are jumping on a bandwagon of using it to, to market themselves and yet It's, I think, technically quite a difficult operation to actually get right. So there's a lot of talk and cross-pollination between like structural and preservation, etc. What are some of your honest thoughts about this?
0: Well, I think preservation rhinoplasty is a, you know, it's not new. Um, You know, this is an operation concept from the 1850s um, before the Civil War in the U.S., uh, so, you know, the fact that it's kind of being dusted off, revisited and, and looked at, I think is super cool. Um, is it useful? Sure. I think if you have the perfect candidate for it and you, you know, can say, well, you know, the dorsum of this nose is perfect. It just needs to be lowered. And we can do that by stripping out some of the septum or or bringing it down without actually doing anything to the, the hump itself. That's great, it seems to me, and this is just me a very long way to go for a short slide. I also feel like you're trying to fit a uh, octagonal peg into a round hole, and you know it's already pretty easy to manage the bones and the dorsum and the septum with the techniques that are kind of tried and true so. Have I done a preservation? Sure. Of course, I've tried it. Um, Am I happy with the results I've gotten on? Yeah, I am. The only reason that I'm happy is because of my patient selection. I am very, very fastidious about who I can do this for and get an A-plus result because I can't have a lot of B-plus results walking around Beverly Hills. I can't still have residual humps. Now, why don't you ask the next question say, how many revisions have you done on people that have had preservation rhinoplasty? Now there's a topic that'll result in a publication because it's a lot and it's a lot that have residual humps and it's a lot that didn't get enough on the tip and it's a lot that still can't breathe because their high septal deviation didn't get treated. So do I think preservation rhinoplasty has a place? Sure. To use it as a marketing tool like it's easy, and it's going to give you a better result, I think is fooling the public. And I don't really love that. So that, to me, is an issue. I don't fault people for using different marketing techniques. I'm sure I've done it myself. But I think that a technique isn't the selling point. I think the result is the selling point. You want to get beautiful results. And if you're Practice is such that you know you get a certain population of patients that all have sort of humps that when they're lowered, they're better, and you can do preservation rhinoplasties on them. That's great. I'm in Los Angeles. I get every ethnicity under the sun coming into this place. I get every kind of disaster revision coming into this place. And so the preservation rhinoplasty for me is a rare occurrence. Uh, but I have done three, and they've turned out great. So
1: that's my take home on that. Cool that's awesome okay so your top three things that you will tell a patient that they need to think about before a rhinoplasty in terms of uh, just in terms of their getting the result or whether they should do it or any of those things in terms of um, like the psychological side of doing the rhinoplasty like trying to question the motivations behind it
0: well that's that's always a big discussion um, that's sort of my opener is, uh so you know especially when I see somebody in their forties or fifties that wants a rhinoplasty, I sort of say, "Why now you know and i and I get them to really hone in on what it is they're trying to achieve so I kind of go through a a little bit of a routine it's not you know it's done in conversation, but my my questions are all about you know why do you want to do this?" What are you looking to achieve? Mm-hmm. What, what would be an optimal result for you? And what if it's not right? You know, what if the, I said. I always say there's a lot of re- revision rhinoplasty. I have a fifty percent of my practice is revisions. Mm-hmm. What if you wind up in that category? Can you handle it? Can you be? Will you be okay with that? I, I know that's not the goal, but somebody winds yeah. up in that fifteen percent of all comers for rhinoplasty yeah. that need revisional surgery. And so those questions do allow me to kind of get a sense for whether this patient can, you know, A, do they know what they're looking for? If they can't tell me what they're looking for, we're, we're done. Yeah. I mean, I need them to be able to articulate sure. it. At least show me a photo of some yeah, nose yeah. they like something. Um, and they kind of have to have a sense of humor. You know, they got to they be able to, to understand it. Yeah, yeah. Like, look, you know, you might need something. Worked out about this. You might need something. If if I can't make a patient laugh, I don't operate on them. That's not, cool not that I'm a funny guy, but like no. they'll still have some sort of laugh of some
1: kind, and that's a that's a big issue. Now, I wanted to ask you for some funny stories in your career. <laughs> <laughs> now, well,
0: what kind of podcast is this? Because there's a lot of funny stories. This <laughs> <It's laughs> so fun anything goes. It's about rhinoplasty. Um, well, keep it, keep it, keep uh, well, it in runner Let's not go lower down in the body. Okay. Well, I'll, I'll tell you a funny story that that came up with one of the hospital administrators from when I was in Pittsburgh, and I was looking at a job there. And this is—I don't want to say which hospital or anything like that, but um, this was back when I was a resident. And uh, the the guy said, uh, "Well, what would you need in terms of? We'd really like you to stay on here. And what would you need in terms of the?" Uh, set up for you. I, I need this kind of a clinic. Well, and I need, I need a nurse and blah, blah, blah. And we went through everything. And then, and you know, what kind of salary? He's like, Yeah, I think we can handle that. And then he goes, Um, well, and, and how, how much does it cost for us to get the plastic? I said, What? He said, How much does it cost for the plastic? He goes, You are a plastic surgeon. I was like, okay, hang on a second, you really don't even know what I do, do you? And he really didn't, he had no clue. And it and was just, manager. it was one of those things that was like, <laughs> okay, whatever. Yeah. That was, a, that was one of the funniest
1: moments in my career in terms of uh, like somebody just absolutely having no idea what it is that I do. Wow, so now you don't have to deal with the hospital manager, do you, do you have your own uh, clinic? No.
0: No, I mean, I have to maintain privileges in order to have our you know uh surgery center here that's uh in in our building where uh, I operate. I have to have privileges at a local hospital in case something happens. You have to have a transfer agreement, so I still have to do cases at Cedars, Sinai and Hogue Hospital in Newport Beach and um, I don't really go there unless there's some you know patient that's you know got some kind of kidney issue or has a pacemaker that we can't deal with in the surgery center and You know, so I do a few cases in the hospital, but
1: no, I'm my own boss and that's the best. It's better to be that way. That's awesome. So Jay, two things around about uh, the the junior surgeons who are listening. um, There's always interest for guys to want to go and visit um, these influential like mentors and stuff. Uh, Are are people able to reach out to you and actually come and visit you in LA and see what you're doing and and join you in the OR or not?
0: Um, They've been not able to because of COVID. Uh, and we have probably, you know, two or three visitors a year from abroad, but it's, uh, it's usually pretty difficult cause I have fellows and I have the USC residents. And so I, I always tell people like, it's not, it's not really a great experience to come here cause you're kind of boxed out. I mean, we put the vi- video up and all that, but, um, we still do have, uh, visitors. We have them email in and then I have them go through a thing. We need letters from their, you know their uh, supervisors and all that sort of stuff. That we make sure that it's actually a surgeon that's coming to visit us, and
1: um so it's it's a bit of a process. But we do have have visitors every now and again. Cool. Okay, so to try and use kind of a sporting analogy for this, again for the the, the junior guys in South Africa, like when we play rugby, there's no defense and offense; you do everything. But in in the states, there's often a defense and offense. And what I'm, my question is in terms of the rhinoplasty. Where it comes to advice for like offensive stuff towards um, a surgeon of you have to do this, you have to do this and this, that's fine. You can learn that. But it's the defense, the stuff you must watch out for, which is important. So what are some of the pitfalls the guys should be who are kind of starting their career must watch out for because they can get into trouble through that?
0: Well, I'm going to say something that is not going to be very popular right now because one of the biggest problems that I see is when a when a surgeon should tell a patient no. And when they when they know and the, the, the hairs on the back of your neck stand up and you know your spidey senses are going off and you shouldn't operate on this patient. You need to say no. Even though you want to help and you want to do the case, you want to do all those things. The most powerful and most useful word for me, in terms of preventing problems, has been no. And the times that I haven't said no, I've regretted it. And I've had big problems because of that. So I would recommend no. The other thing is, you have to have some sort of psychiatric screening on your intake forms. Uh, psychiatric disease leads people to want to change things on their body. And they can, they aren't there for the right reasons. And if it is, you know a, a delusional issue or something that you miss you're going to really pay for it and and I definitely have I've I've had patients that you know and, and the problem is a lot of the patients learn as they go through consults that oh I can't talk about that. I had a patient who hid their psychiatric history from me and has wound up being just one of the biggest pains in my entire life and he's bipolar and had all kinds of problems and and did not disclose that on their intake forms. And so you have to kind of probe a little bit more. And you have to have some questions on your intake form that will elucidate those issues. Because if you operate on these people and they're not in the right mind frame to, to take care of what needs to be done, you're going to have problems. So those are big, big warnings for those who are getting into rhinoplasty. And, and
1: it's really any plastic surgery, too. So, okay. So, it, it, following up on that, so say you are starting to get concerned, um, all, and this is somebody you're not going to want to operate on because, um, on the one hand, there's this I'm actually technically not skilled enough to do the operation, but this is a patient I don't want to operate on. On the other hand, how do you break that bad news to the patient? Do you try and send them to your, um, your arch enemy down the road, or it's it's, <laughs> it's difficult? I mean, you got to this comes with the experience, you know.
0: Yeah. I just, I say I'm not the surgeon for you. Uh, you know, it's just not a match. You know, it's kind of like, you know, I'm sorry, I'm going to have to swipe left on this one. You know, it's like not happening. You know, you, you cannot, you got to move on next one. And I don't think that, uh, the patients don't, they get it if they know that it's not going to work. They don't want you to operate on them if you don't want to operate on them. Um, I do send them to, uh, people that I think they'll be right for quite honestly, not my arch enemy. Um, I don't send them to, to people that I know do their operation and not do a good job. I send it to people that maybe there'll be a match. Um, and then the people that just shouldn't have rhinoplasty I just say, you know, this isn't a good idea for you. And I just say, I don't give them any referral because they really shouldn't have surgery. No.
1: But I mean, that's a cool thing about integrity that you have, you know, um, and it's good to keep that. So um, another question in terms of, I think this could be interesting to the listeners what percentage of patients who end up getting a consultation with you for rhinoplasty actually end up on the table and getting the surgery? It's, it's high. It's about 85%. And the
0: reason is, is that my, my referral patterns and the ways that people wind up in my practice is that they're in the right place for what they need. You know, I don't I don't have like a lot of Google ads and I don't have a lot of marketing that's, you know, bringing in sort of like let's sort out the wheat from the chaff kind of consults. And we have a consult fee that's not high, um, but it's enough that people don't shop. You know, it's enough that they're like, oh, you know, I'm not going to go there and check that out. It's just that's too much money for just a, you know, flyby. So, you know, I I've I really get patients in that are right
1: for me, which is really good. Oh, okay. So my last question you are in the center of plastic surgery in the world, really, with some super rich people there. What is for you the most difficult part about being a plastic surgeon in Beverly Hills?
0: Well, there's, there's a lot of
1: challenges, that's for sure, but
0: uh, one, of the, one of the most difficult parts of that is uh, managing the business of this surgery center in my practice. In such a way that it's uh, that it runs smoothly. It's it's really a it's a constant tweaking and and tightening and changing and you know people come in and go out and you know you have people that you know folks that have to move to another part of the country and you have to replace them. So having everybody in my practice on the same page so that the messaging to the patients is consistent that's the most challenging part. Now, I've gotten very good at that because when I interview people for jobs, I know within like three minutes whether I'm going to hire them or not. And it's also the same with our fellows. Like I, when we interview these fellows, I know whether I want them hanging around here for a year or whether they, they just aren't going to mesh with my patients. So that's the hard part. The other, the other part that is challenging is that everybody knows everybody here. And so anybody that winds up in my practice is somebody. They're connected to somebody it could be you know some you know huge hollywood movie producer's nephew who's married to you know the some person that i know from you know back in nashville and so it, it's such a small co- connected community and so you want to be your best you want to do your best all the time you want to be uh empathetic and compassionate and you want the the patients to really see who who you are and yeah. so my the way that I do that is I just present total authenticity at all times. It's just easier to be yourself, tell the truth, and be honest and say, you know, you can't be my patient. You have to leave. You know, like you have to, you, and so there's some harsh messaging sometimes that has to come out. And then there's also some very positive messaging. And, and so that's why it, it's really worked. The, the podcast for me has been very useful because if you listen to the Beverly Hills Plastic Surgery podcast, you'll hear Dr. Ravello and I just shooting the breeze like we are right now. And it, it's just two plastic surgeons talking about what we do, the way we do it, with our, with our gripes and our, our loves and our ups and downs of the, what we do. And patients really appreciate that because they get a sense of who you are. And that's most important. I mean, there are so many guys that are so mechanical and contrived and strange about how they communicate with patients. My, my patients don't like that. And so I wind up with patients that like what it is that I do. And that's why I think it's working very well, because you get the people that are best for you. It's also the question why what everyone says, oh, you're training all these fellows and they're all staying around Los Angeles. You know, Don't you feel like you're training your competition? And I said, well, no, because th- their patients aren't right for me. You know, there's 17 million people here. If you can't get patients with 17 million people in the LA basin, I, I don't think that you should be a plastic surgeon then, because it, it doesn't matter if... 400 plastic surgeons showed up tomorrow i'd still get the patients that need to be with me that's how it works
1: exactly exactly competition's a great thing yeah so jay honestly it's there is no
0: competition the only the only competition cameron is you the day before you're in competition with the guy that you were yesterday you need to be better tomorrow and that's the key and you have today to do that so it's just you shouldn't be competing with anybody. You shouldn't even care what everybody else is doing. You should be focused on yourself and your results and what you do. And everybody else can do whatever they have to do, but you have to stay true to what you want to do and how you want to do it. So I always say there is no competition.
1: That's great, Tay. Eh? Hey, Tay, I, I, on behalf of everybody around the world, the guys have been listening to this. Shout out to again, guys. Thank you for making this podcast happen. Really appreciate it, but Tay, hey, genuinely, it's 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 a breath of fresh air talking to you. Um i'm enthused man um thank you for what you're you're doing for education around the world honestly thank you for the effort you put in for world rhinoplasty day just taking time off when you should be with your son today to be on this podcast appreciate it and and all the best for you for the rest of the year eh? all right i'll see you soon cameron thanks again